Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to the Arkansas AgCast for October 3rd. I'm your host, Mark Lambert. On this week's edition, we have interviews with the CEO of a new agricultural startup in northwest Arkansas, a rancher and a poultry grower in Logan County, the new head of the National Pork Board, and a representative of the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, who tells us about an organization for students from primarily rural communities. First up, Arkansas Farm Bureau's Greg Patterson interviews Brian Western, CEO of Little Bird Systems of Fayetteville, which has created a new technology for poultry feed monitoring to help with inventory control. This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas AgCast, and today's guest is Brian Western. He is the CEO of Little Bird Systems, and it's a uh, a poultry... um, Kind of explain that to us, because I'm not exactly sure how it comes across there, Brian. Sure, it's a, it's a poultry feed monitoring system, uh, really used for inventory control. Okay, and explain how you came about um, with the idea. I mean, what what was the genesis of coming up with a um, poultry feed monitoring system, and why is that important in today's market? Sure, yeah, sure thing. So uh, we started Little Bird Systems uh, in 2012, but we were just a consulting company. We were an electronics sensor consulting company, and uh, we were just doing uh, side projects uh, in in addition to our uh, real job at at the time as electrical engineers. Um, We decided we wanted to do uh, Little Bird Systems full-time, so we started looking for uh, applications that we could try to tackle and through uh, some of our contacts uh, we came along uh, to the this poultry industry uh, problem and so they they told us hey we've been trying to solve this problem for you know the last decade and really the issue is, is there are these towers out on the poultry farm they hold 36,000 pounds of feed in them and right now the uh, poultry growers, the farmers, uh, they go out to them, they kind of bang on the side of them, some of them might climb up and look inside of them, uh, and then they report that back to uh, the integrators, you know, once, maybe twice a week. And the integrators, so your Tyson's, your Simmons, your Pilgrim's Pride, are responsible for delivering the feed, so that inventory uh, number's real uh, real important to them, and the, the problem is with uh, the towers this large and looking inside, it's actually really hard to get a, a decent estimate, and so it's not uncommon to be, uh, you know, five to 10,000 pounds off when you're doing one of these estimates. And our contacts told us, you know, there's there's products in the market that do this. There's load cells. This is essentially taking the entire tower and setting it on a uh, scale system, but those are expensive and they've been uh, somewhat unreliable in the industry. They've been available for 15, 10, 15 years and really haven't caught on. So they told us, uh, can you develop something that uh, is reliable, that's easier to install and that's more cost effective than these load cells? And uh, we, we started putting our heads together on the problem. Um, and what we eventually came up with what we call our feedcast system. Uh, the feedcast system is a pretty unique way of measuring how much feed is in one of these towers. Uh, I don't know, Greg. We may have been we may have been drinking at the time when we came up with the idea. Uh, you know when you know when you have a uh, wine glass and you rub the rim of the wine glass and it makes a tone. Yes. So that tone changes depending on how much wine is in that glass. And so we took that same sort of concept and applied it to these giant feed towers. So the feed cast system has a component that sits on top of the bin and it vibrates the bin as a whole. And then we have several vibration sensors that we put down the side of the bin. And by measuring that vibration and letting our system process that vibration, we can determine how much feed is inside that tower, and then our unit on top of it sends it to a gateway that's on the farm, and that shoots it out 
over the cellular network so the grower or the integrator or the feed mill can look at their phone or they can look at their computer or they can look at their email and get a uh, up-to-date inventory so that they can base all their delivery logistics based on this uh, much more real-time, much more accurate information rather than the farmer calling in a reading once a week. So, so it saves the farmer time um, because this information is readily available uh, in real time, um, if I understand you correctly. So the farmer benefits that way, and then the integrator benefits by, I think you said, uh, under older systems, there's, you know, 5,000 to 10,000 pounds of uh, a feed that you may be off under an old system. Um, and, and how important, um, what percentage of, of cost in raising a chicken is tied up in feed? I'm sure it's, it's pretty substantial. Yeah, the vast majority of the cost in raising the chicken is actually the feed cost. I forget the exact number, but it's in the uh, 60 to 70 percent range, if I remember correctly. Wow. Um, that that five to ten thousand pounds off is when uh, one of the farmers is making a, a manual estimate, and it's just really hard to make a manual estimate just banging on the side of one of these bins. And so that's how you get those inaccurate readings. And kind of what happens if you have an inaccurate reading, um, you can run out of feed a couple of days early, and then you have to call in, the farmer has to call into the feed mill and get an emergency delivery out there. So the feed mill has to spin way up real quick and maybe deliver on a weekend, and so they're paying extra uh, to get feed out there on a weekend. Or they're just not being able to plan properly because they're having to fight these fires rather than um, rather than just plan out all their deliveries properly. So there is a convenience factor for the grower. They don't have to take these manual measurements, but the real real benefit comes at the feed mill level where they can optimize all their delivery logistics based on this real-time information coming in. Now, tied up in delivery, of course, is, as you were just mentioning a, a, a few minutes ago, the manpower to get the feed to the farms. Plus, you've got trucks and truck maintenance, and you've got the gasoline necessary or the diesel necessary to, to drive those trucks. So, uh, what are integrators telling you that have implemented this system what kind of savings um, it, it, are they experiencing so far? So uh, we're right now just on uh, a handful of test farms. We have uh, seven farms kind of spread throughout the country, largely here in the south, uh, that we're on. And their savings right now are mostly coming from, uh, coming from uh, just those delivery logistics. They've told us if we were to if we were able to outfit uh, an entire feed mill, uh, an entire complex, so if a large feed mill may take care of um, uh, 1,200, 1,300 bins. That'd be a very large feed mill. But uh, for one of those larger feed mills, if they were to implement our system. Uh, complex wide, they could eliminate these less than full loads that they have to go out with when there is an emergency delivery. Um, and they could save nine to 10 truckloads uh, per, or, I'm sorry, nine to 10 trips per week, um, every week on the complex uh, wide. Now, the other thing that they have to look at, uh, you were talking about the uh, labor associated with the drivers. Um, and right now, everybody in the industry will tell you uh, keeping uh, drivers is an issue. There's a, an actual driver shortage in a lot of areas uh, trying to you know, uh, trying to get this feed delivered. And so being able to minimize the number of personnel that you need uh, to be drivers is a, another driving factor for this because they can't just find and keep drivers. Now, Brian, you said you're you're on seven farms right now where you're doing uh, basically tests to see um, how this is all going. Are you looking for um, poultry farmers to volunteer to be 
um, test farms, or how are you going about um, doing that? It, right now, we're, we're doing it both ways. We're looking, we're talking directly to the integrators, and we're talking to farmers. Um, uh, largely, sorry, we have some testing going on in our lab back there that you might hear some <laughs> some noise from. But so we're talking to two different. Um, yeah, we're talking to a couple of different uh, methods of cell there. So we're talking to the farmers directly, and we're talking to uh, the integrators directly. The uh, farmers directly, we're not necessarily looking for volunteers, though the farmers we have worked with directly tend to be uh, very cutting edge in the technology that they want to implement on their farm. So if you're a grower out there and you're like, oh, I really like to see uh, the latest and greatest technology that we can put on my farm to make things run as smoothly as possible. You know, we, we really like to talk to those people right now. We're in the process of uh, talking to these integrators and these feed mills and trying to get an entire complex outfitted because the major benefit for the integrator and for the uh, feed mill manager is going to come once an entire complex is outfitted so that we can really start uh, optimizing their entire delivery process. Ex- explain for the listeners, and, and this is this is uh, um, maybe maybe somewhat of a challenge because we're not looking at video, we're not standing there in front of one of these feed towers on a farm. But explain the setup process for the Little Bird system. Sure. So so the feed cap system super easy to install. Um, it's got one blue box that sits on top of the bin. Uh, that blue box is maybe four inches by five inches and has a solar panel in the middle of it. So it's solar charged and battery powered so you don't have to run any external electricity to the bin. Uh, that, that box sits on top of the tower and then we plug in a cable that runs down the side of the tower. Um, that box and those sensors on the side of the tower all have magnets attached to them, so everything attaches magnetically to the outside of the, the tower. Uh, when we're out installing one of these systems, it's, it's less than a 20-minute process to get it installed, and it doesn't have to be empty of feet or anything like that. We can install uh, at any point. Now, um, is there any issues that you're running into? Because most of these farms are in rural areas, I would assume, um, is it, are there any broadband issues or, or things like that that you run into in, in trying to get this information then to, you know, go up, I guess, to a cloud-based system of some sort where the, the mill then can, can pull it down and, and uh, you know, make decisions on, on feed that they need to uh, send out? Sure, that, that's a good question. Um, We've had several of our integrators that we're working with put us out on their, what they call their worst performing uh, cellular farm. So the, the one most in the middle of nowhere that they have to deal with. Um, and to this, uh, to this point, we have not run into an issue where we have not been able to get cellular service. Generally, you have a little tiny bit of cellular service almost everywhere uh, at this point. And since our box, it doesn't have to move and we're not sending just lots and lots of data for it. So if it is a very low cellular signal, we'll put an external directional antenna pointed at the nearest tower uh, on that. And so we can uh, amplify a very small cellular signal into something that's able to reliably connect. And since it's not, uh, since it's not a mobile asset, since it's not moving, uh, we have no problem maintaining that connection. And since we're only sending a few bytes at a time, we're not trying to stream video uh, through that uh, cellular connection. We're just sending little bits of data, so we're able to successfully do that, even in very rural areas. Now, Brian, you've got a um, a startup business here. You're, you're getting some um, pilot projects underway. What's the next step for um, Little Bird as far as securing, as any business needs, the necessary funding to get to the next step? What are your efforts there? Sure. So uh, we've worked with uh, 
a various angel investors to fund us up into the, up to this point, uh, as well as some uh, other partners in the industry. Uh, we are right now just starting another uh, fundraising round where we're looking for um, uh, more investors. Uh, we're, we're not quite into uh, being able to share that uh, publicly yet, but. Um, we're, we're really just starting that funding process. And uh, right now we're looking to get enough funding to carry us through next year where it looks like 2021 will finally start to get enough traction to uh, become uh, self-sufficient, self-sustaining from revenues coming in. Well, it sounds like you've got an excellent idea, and it sounds like um, you're seeing some success uh, right now in, in the early stages of getting this system off the ground. And um, we certainly wish you the best um, in in making this happen. It could it could uh, show up in huge savings, uh, both for uh, the integrator and in time savings and worry savings for the farmers as well when they need that feed uh, immediately. Absolutely, Greg. That's, that's certainly our, our hope that it gets out there and really starts helping the uh, growers and ideally making it so that the birds themselves uh, never run out of feed. So at least they, they always have that available to them. Well, on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we've been talking with Brian Western, He's the CEO of the Little Bird uh, Company, and uh, you might want to tell us how'd you how'd you come up with the name Little Bird. <laughs> so that's a, that's a funny story uh, because we actually came up with the name Little Bird Systems before we knew we were even going to be working in the poultry industry. Um, the overall idea was that we were an electronics and specifically a sensor company, and so we wanted to be. Uh, be able to deliver to our customers uh, new information that they've never uh, had before. And so in uh, storybooks, when somebody has information that they've never uh, had before, they'll, they'll often say, a little bird told them. <laughs> and so we want it to be that proverbial little bird that's giving people new information. And now that we're in the poultry industry, it all kind of makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, He's Brian Western, CEO of Little Bird Systems, and uh, on this edition of Arkansas Agcast, Brian, thank you so much for spending time with us. Of course, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. Next, Greg talks to Logan County cattle rancher and poultry grower Brian Weisenfels, who talks about his recent investment in black baldy cattle from Montana. This is Greg Patterson, and on this edition of Arkansas Agcast, we're talking with Brian Weisenfels, and Brian... You got yourself a new herd of cattle last year, some black baldies. Tell us about them. Yes, uh, it's a set of uh, 40 black black baldy heifers that were uh, purchased out of, uh, or the farm purchased out of Busby, Montana. They were shipped down with uh, another load of cattle that a good friend of mine bought. Uh, He took 42 of them, I took 40 of them, and I was interested in them just to lay a ground foundation for our herd our new herd here, cattle, try to get some different breeding in, different type of cattle, and maybe start some new genetics. Now, tell me, what what made you think about Montana and getting northern animals and bringing them down here to the the hot south? I've always heard that the northern cattle will do pretty good here in the south. They they if they you do it at the right time of the year that they always adjust to the climate change and it's just different breeding up there. Their cattle are so moderate frame. They're bred for hardiness and docile. I mean, they're not very, I mean, these heifers are pretty gentle. I mean, they're not mean. They're just pretty easy to be around. I mean, I've always heard that the cattle up there are just a lot different type of cattle, more muscular type cattle, and try to, I thought it might be some neat genetics to build into a herd. Now, tell us about the black baldy. What what goes into making a black baldy? I think the black baldy is a cross between a Hereford and an Angus. And and you have 40 right now, and what are your goals as you build on this herd? My goal is to eventually have somewhere around 200, 220 mama cows. I would like to say I would want the majority of them to be black, black baldies. 
probably some going to have some red motley faces in there because of the breeding that we're doing. That's fine, some red cattle, but majority of them are wanting to be black, black baldies because that tends to be some of the better markets around here right now is the black cattle. So, Tell us um, about, you were mentioning some of the good characteristics about the gentleness of the animal and, and tell us some of the other things. You obviously did a lot of research on, on why you wanted this particular cattle yes uh i did some research i think they're just so much harder they got so much more muscular they got some frame size on them uh they just got that much more deposition the deep open rib type cattle that's going to make good mama cows long lasting mama cows and that's some of the things that i've always read about them cattle up there that are just you see them out on different pictures of sales and stuff like that it's just like they're like a different breed of cattle up there so what was it like when they showed up and, and you were getting them for the first time? I'm sure you were pretty excited. I was very excited. Uh, honestly, I was pretty, uh, when I seen them, I said, why did I just invest this much money in these cattle? But you got to realize they were on a truck for 24 hours. They, it took them 24 hours to get here on a truck. So they were on a truck for 24 hours, whether or not, they got unloaded for water. I don't know. I don't think so. But they were on a truck for 24 hours. All right. So you're coming up on having them for one year. One year. Kind of walk us through what the year has been like in raising these animals. It's been a uh, pretty. It's been pretty interesting. Pretty fun, challenging, uh, because we got them last year, November 1st, uh, when they arrived here at the farm. They left out there on the 31st early in the morning or somewhere around morning out there and got here on the 1st and they arrived over at CBI called my friend's place about noon. Then we got over there about two o'clock in the afternoon to start loading them out and bringing them here. And I had feed out for them fresh hay. I'd done everything that I could do to make them be accustomed to uh, getting here. And so, get, you, so you put out the red carpet for them. I pretty well did. I laid, I did everything that I could have them put fresh hay out for them, had feed out in the trough for them. But knowing that they'd just been on a truck for 24 hours, that they, they're going to lay down and rest. I mean, all they wanted to do was get some water in them, get a little dry hay in them, keep their stomach going. To me, I think that was the main acquisition is just trying to get them accustomed to getting back, eating some feed and some hay and, all that. I mean, it was it was challenging the first few days. I mean, they didn't they come up for feed a little bit. I mean, but mainly they just wanted to just be left alone. They wanted to be relaxed, lay out in a pasture. I'd go out there a couple times a day, look at them, and I put them right out here by the house where they're at right now. That's been their homes the whole time, and you could tell you could start telling after a couple of days that they were starting to feel better. They were eating the feed that I was putting out for them and. Then they started coming around a little better, and really after about the first week, 10 days, you could see them starting to kind of get acquisition to the place and eating hay and eating on hay and stuff like that. And once I knew that, I said, I think I, I think they're gonna be okay. And sure enough, within 30 days, it was like a whole new set of cattle, so. So as, as you took them through the year, you've just explained, you know, the first month or so that you have them. As you took them through the year, what were some of the challenges that that maybe you hadn't even thought of you've been raising cattle so it's not like you're not experienced right. but what were some of the challenges that may have cropped up i was worried about how they were going to take through the winter and the coming off being weaned cattle and all that uh i was really worried about how they were going to really accustom to our type of feeding system that we feed here that was a challenging thing uh but they just adjusted to the feed well or hay situation made a put good winter pasture out for them last year got some good grass up for them and really once i got them off and growing i mean it was fun to watch them grow i mean you could just see them growing every you could just look out there and watch them grow i mean that was the main makes you feel pretty good about yourself when you can take a set of heifers like that and just see them perform right in front of your eyes and i weren't got them up and warmed them and took care of them giving them their shots that they needed throughout the period so they would be ready to breed in the spring and uh, it's been pretty uh, rewarding so far. So any particular health issues that you've had to deal with no, with these animals? I doctored two calves for sore foots, and that's it. Wow. So so you've had some real good luck yes. with their health. What about, as you well know, 
and I'm sure you had it here. You got a lot of rain last year, right when they were right. coming in. It rained throughout the winter. Right. It rained throughout the spring. So how I was uh, worried about the uh, health on them, but I can't, like I said, I had them on uh, medicated feed for about the first month here. Then after that, they were just on our straight normal feed, and I kept them out minerals and kept them kept a good eye out on them, and everything seemed to be working perfect. I guess Mother Nature took its good care of them because i mean i had no sickness with them or anything so now you're coming up on year one anniversary and as you move into year two talk about what your plan is next for these black baldies the plan is next for them they will start calving somewhere around the 24th excuse me the 24th of february through i'm going to give them should be right a three-week period to have them all calved all 40 of them i if my numbers are right, we got around 32 out of the 40 bred AI. So that would make them one calf pretty quick on this pretty small group. Uh, then uh, I had a few stragglers that come back in on me. So hopefully within three weeks, all of them will be fresh. Uh, my plan is then to breed them to a uh, what I call a Kunai or a red-eyed Hereford bull that I'd purchased, uh, BCH, Dr. Who, uh, from Chris Hoover and breed them to him in November, excuse me, in May, uh, to keep half the heifers back, uh, from hopefully I get some heifers out of these kids. I can keep them back for the following year and breed them when they're about eight, 15, 17 months old too. And that way I could have some more offspring coming out of these cattle. So how's the beef market doing right now? What are some of the challenges? You can do everything you can do right here. Right. But then other factors come into play. Right. The sell, the the quality of the sales barns right now are good, but the market's pretty sore. I mean, it's a pretty tight market on cattle right now. We've seen some pretty low prices this year and last year both. Uh, it's not like what we've seen in 14 and 15 what we were accustomed to seeing, but uh, the market's pretty tight and you got to do what you got to do. You got to get good cattle. If you have good cattle, you can market good cattle. Good cattle will market yourself. So that's the thing. And I'm trying to get some good cattle where they can come into the sale barn and look good. Try to do some things on your farm. If you sell bigger groups, the bigger groups usually seem to bring a little bit more money. And that's something that I was looking forward to trying to get a bigger group of cattle to sell at one time, maybe sell 40 or 50 in a lot instead of six or seven. I think the things that you do like that can increase your uh, profitability on them. So uh, we're looking through year one. You're going into year two. You're trying to get them so you have spring and fall oh. calving. And what's the, let's look out three to five years. Um, you've got a certain amount of ground here. How many animals do you want to wind up with working? My total goes running somewhere around 200 mama cows 210 somewhere in that range uh my ultimate goal is to have a production sale sometime maybe three four years down the road have enough offsprings uh out of my own cattle where i could maybe sell 30 or 40 heifers in a year's time that i don't need to put back for cows that i've got enough yearlings back and offspring backs and maybe then i want to downsize who knows i don't know yet i mean but my plan is someday to maybe have the potential to have a production cell right here well you know um we have uh listeners right now and they can't see us sitting here talking about your cattle but your face is lit up you got a big smile on your face you're really excited about these cattle so i gotta ask you are are these is this a business or are these pets this is it is a business farm decision to get these cattle here, but they they rank high on the they rank pretty high up on the farms issues. They so give you a lot of joy. They do. They really do. They're fun to watch. Well, on this edition of Arkansas Agcast, we've been talking with uh, Brian Weissenfels, and he's got him a new herd of black baldies. He's pretty excited about it. And the future's looking good for him. So, Brian, thank you so much for spending time with us on AgCast. Okay, thank you. Now our own Keith Sutton talks with Dr. David Newman, a professor of animal science in the Arkansas State University School of Agriculture, who is the new president of the National Pork Board. Newman talks about his new position, his job as A-State, and his farming operation. Hi, I'm Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau. Welcome to this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Today I'm talking to Dr. David Newman, who is the new president of the National Pork Board. 
Uh, good morning, Dr. Newman. How are you today? Just fine, Keith. Thank you very much. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I wanted to start by uh, telling folks a little bit about your position at Arkansas State University where you teach and conduct research. Tell us a little about what you do there. Yes, sir. So I uh, have been at Arkansas State for four years now. I work in the College of Agriculture as a professor of animal science. So what I do there is primarily a teaching and then research role. So my background, PhD, is in meat science muscle biology. So talking about the farm to plate connection is very big, uh, something that we introduce into the classroom. We have a, not only a full functioning farm at Arkansas State right there in Jonesboro, but also uh, we've got a meat facility on campus as well where we can harvest, fabricate, process, uh, and work with all species of livestock in order to give our, hand, our students a real hands-on experience. Well, you wear many hats, too. You're also a pig farmer. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Uh, so my wife and I run a family farming operation uh, right on the very north end of Randolph County, Arkansas, and the southern end of Oregon County, Missouri. Uh, so about 65 miles north and west of Jonesboro. Uh, we run a fair to finish swine operation uh, where we direct market meats uh, on to mostly to the restaurant business all across the country. And uh, we also run a commercial cow-calf operation, and we run a commercial lamb operation. Wow, that's a lot uh, a lot of work doing all those things, but you're also the newly elected president of the National Pork Board. Tell everybody what the pork board is and, and what y'all do. So the National Pork Board is the checkoff organization of the, the pig industry here in the United States. So similar to the way we have a soybean checkoff, corn checkoff, dairy checkoff, um, and beef checkoff, along with, with numerous other checkoff programs, what we're running is, is really the, the research, promotion, and education side of a mandatory checkoff uh, that started in 1985 is regulated through Congress, through Secretary of Ag, Sonny Perdue now. And what we do there really is, is my job as, as president of the board is to work with the CEO, Bill Even, and the rest of our board members and staff to responsibly allocate, you know, the uh, between 70 and $100 million of pork checkoff dollars towards research, promotion, and education with marketing pork, not just domestically, but globally, uh, speaking about U.S. pork. So this year uh, and, and next, as you move uh, forward, what are some of the priorities uh, for you as president of the National Pork Board? Well, first off, I'm, I'm honored to serve the producers uh, that I work with. So there's there's 60,000 plus pork producers in the United States, and and uh, I'm very honored for the fact that they elected me to help lead their organization. Um, the priorities, the list is long, Keith, as you might imagine, of the, of the opportunities and challenges facing our business. But, but during my tenure, to, to focus on your question, there's a couple of big things that, that we have going on. One is we, we have a totally new direction for the National Port Board uh, here beginning and, and basically this fall and that is uh we have we have realigned with a whole new strategic vision for our industry for our checkoff program and we just went through uh an extensive uh strategic planning session for the last year and we're really trying to, to focus in and hone in on those things that are the most important to our producers that can impact them every day um, and doing so, we're basically restructuring our entire organization. So a very exciting time there. Another thing that we're doing is we're working very closely with our sister organization, the National Pork Producers Council, um, which, is a, which is a clear distinction in the U.S. We have the National Pork Board that does research, education, and promotion and does no lobbying whatsoever. We have the National Pork Producers Council 
um, that, that handles lobbying and other activities like that in Washington, D.C. So we're, we're doing a, 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 a joint task force right now where we're talking about the way we strategically work together, the two organizations. And then I would just say that, that aside from the daily grind of, of trying to, to market pork domestically and internationally, two big things going on right now is one keeping the united states free of african swine fever or keeping the entire western hemisphere free of african swine fever and the second thing is is watching although we don't work specifically with trade these trade deals are going to have a huge impact on profitability moving forward for us so watching the activities that are happening right now uh, around the world trying to market this 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 you know large amount of product we have here in the U.S. of safe pork, those are going to be our big challenges and opportunities moving forward in the immediate short term. So uh, one of the things I know that you're involved with is something called the Secure Pork Supply Plan. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So so we've we've been working to institute uh, the Secure Pork Supply Plan for the last several years. And, and what it is basically, Keith, is we're developing uh, an online platform uh, where we can work with our producers, all producers, in order to effectively have management and, tra- and tracking, traceability of livestock here in the United States. And specific to swine, this is very important information to understand Health, health papers, pig flow. We have pigs moving from coast to coast every day with the way our system is designed today. And if we were to be impacted by a foreign animal disease, not just African swine fever, any trade limiting foreign animal disease, we want to be able to understand where those animals are, where they came from, what their health status is, because we want to use secure pork supply for continuity of business. We want to get back to work as soon as we can with our trading partners. We want to be able to, to have interstate commerce in action. So so getting this into one robust digital system is very, very important for the traceability of the hog supply here in the U.S. So this morning on the news, I saw just a brief report as we talked a little bit about trade there, that maybe there are some new trade opportunities that are about to open up. Do you know anything about that that you could speak to? Sure. Well, speaking as a pork producer, um, you know, the, 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 the prospect of trade right now is is really the the thing that's driving our markets. It's, it's driving the markets every day. And I know that anyone who probably listens to, to the, your podcast has a good understanding of that when we think about the corn, soy, cotton, rice, beef business uh, here in Arkansas. There is a, you know, a big impact on the daily activities and trade. You know, we, we recently uh, had a signing of, of a new FTA with Japan that's very big for, for U.S. pork producers and beef producers as well because it puts us back into a level playing field in terms of tariffs from where we were prior to President Trump, uh, you know, bailing on TPP whenever he got elected. So that looks very good. Japan's an extremely promising market for us. Japan has been one of our longest trading partners um, that that we have had for high value of U.S. pork. Um, the, The number one, of course, right now today, if you listen to the news, it's China, 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 right? Right. And, and, and if, if there's just a tremendous opportunity, I'm going to speak only specifically to pork here. Uh, we know that there are definitely big opportunities for, for soy and other businesses in China, but specifically to pork, the China to, to, to put this mildly, has been ravaged by African swine fever in the last 24 months. And they've lost an estimated, you know, the, the number is is not exact, but they they estimated numbers is that China's lost about 30% of its hog supply. So that that's massive numbers. We're talking about a reduction in sows and the number of five to 10 million sows. 
that's the equivalent of all sows we have in the United States. So, so with pork being such a highly consumed protein in Asia, having this, this massive loss of, of swine in, in Asia, and when I say Asia, I'm not just talking about China, uh, Vietnam, the Philippines, Singapore, as of last week, South Korea, all of these countries have African swine fever. So, so the trade prospect for pork looks extremely good right now. But um, as you know well, the talking about trade is one thing. Creating trade is another thing. So as we watch these trade deals get done, um, it's going to be interesting to see how we level up, globally speaking, in terms of tariffs uh, and, and opportunities into those markets. But as a pork producer, uh, I'm very encouraged that uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunity out on the global market for pork. Well, all of that sounds like a, a, a complex situation, uh, but there could be some good news down the road for our producers. Can you talk a little bit about uh, pork production in Arkansas, how many producers we have, and what, what's pork like here? We, we don't see as much of it here as we do in some other states. Could you speak to that, please? Sure. Well, so the pork business in Arkansas is, is structured quite differently, as you just pointed out, than some of the traditional swine states like Missouri, directly to your north. Of course, the two biggest pork-producing states in the United States are Iowa and North Carolina. But there, there still is a sizable amount of production in Arkansas. We actually uh, don't have a tremendous number of pork producers left here in the state. But that's for a variety of reasons, which I can explain. Part of this is, is most of our hog business in Arkansas is along the western side um, or in the north central piece. There are some, some hogs still located uh, up here in north central Arkansas, there's some large sow barns here that are producing isoene pigs that go to that go into Iowa and other places to be finished. Very biosecure areas that really helps. However, feed cost uh, basis location that has a big impact on where where production systems are being located. It's it's no surprise that there aren't a lot of hog barns in the Delta. Uh, anywhere you get you know, high value crop ground that sits, you know, at a low elevation that's usually doesn't match up well for permitting hog barns. So uh, rice country wouldn't be the ideal kind of place to, 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 to grow up a, a pork system. So much like our cattle business, most of that is from the central to western side of the state. Now, if you get over near the western side where uh, we do have some pigs over there that are still uh, part of, of, of two big operators uh, here in the United States, JBS and Tyson. There are some sow barns and pigs going across state lines. Uh, you know from the news that there was a lot of contention here in Arkansas for the last several years over on the Buffalo Water Rivershed about pork production, and that was a big challenge here in Arkansas. What? What I can tell you, from my opinion, not as the president of the National Pork Board, but from my opinion as a producer, my professional opinion, is that uh, this is something very common that we see is a challenge to right to, to the right to farm, um, the freedom to operate, if you will, where we are being responsible stewards of the land, responsible stewards of our animals. Um, but whenever we go to expand or build, which which has a robust impact on the local economy, um, it's it's pretty commonplace. We we see this throughout parts of the United States that uh, we get some kickback from other producers, or or more specifically from the community on the expansion of livestock, and and that's a big challenge moving forward. Our friends in North Carolina are certainly no strangers to that game. Um, you see how this situation ended up here in Arkansas over on the, the Rivershed with the governor getting involved. Um, that Those type of things are, quite honestly, very challenging to give other producers the incentive to build. 
and that's something that we have to do. I know something that it's, that your group works on every day is is the advocating for agriculture and and telling people about the the great story we have to tell, how it has a great positive impact on the economy, the workforce, and otherwise. And those are going to be some of the things we're going to have to focus on moving forward if we want states like Arkansas to play a significant role in swine production. And I think uh, what you've just told us in this podcast will help everybody better understand uh, pork production in the U.S. and worldwide and here in Arkansas, and that's probably a good place for us to wrap up. I know you're a busy man, and uh, we don't want to keep you too long, but we thank you for being on Arkansas AgCast with us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Keith. Anytime, I look forward to it. Thank you very much. Arkansas Farm Bureau's Ken Moore recently visited with the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in Little Rock to learn more about an organization for students from rural communities. It's known as the Rural Medicine Student Leadership Association, and Ken spoke to Jessica Bursk, the student coordinator for regional programs at UAMS, about the association and how its members are introduced to employment opportunities in underserved communities of the state. I'm Ken Moore, and I'm at the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences campus in Little Rock, and I'm uh, pleased to be visiting with Jessica Burks. She is the student coordinator for regional programs here at UAMS, and we're going to be talking about the Rural Medicine Student Leadership Association, or that's the title we're going to use the acronym, Jessica Rimsla. It's just easier to say that. Uh, It's been around for a long time. Tell us just a little bit briefly about Rimsla, this uh, Rural Student Leadership Association, how long it's been in existence here, because you get med students here from all over. But are these uh, the students uh, that are in Rimsla, do they primarily come from rural communities? They do. Um, This interest group is for student, medical students, and typically most of our meetings are M1 and M2 students um, who are still in classes here on campus. And we have a monthly meeting and we bring in speakers from around Arkansas. They may be rural practice physicians, um, maybe CEOs of uh, different organizations that just get together with us and tell the students about opportunities for employment uh, in rural communities. There is a great need for many of your students here to return home or to return to rural communities to meet those needs. Absolutely. The great uh, the need is very great. Um, there's estimates that about 400 uh, physicians will be needed by 2030. And so we are trying to get these students interested in rural practices as much as possible so we can serve those communities. How many of those are just in primary care? Those 400 slots are primary care. A lot of our physicians, our current physicians, are going to be retiring, and so there's going to, that's going to be a huge shortage area for us. So do you find students that come here to UAMS, are they getting their degrees, getting certified, and then do they want to go back to those small towns? Uh, because even though they were raised there, they want to escape and come to the big city, or do they understand the need and they have an affinity for, to raise their families there. I think there are a group of students who come in knowing that they want to go back home and they want to, they want to participate in a rural practice. Um, there are a lot of students that are not from rural areas that we send for service projects and different things out into rural areas, and they say, wow, we had no idea there was such a need. So we do get students from more urban areas that do become interested in going back and giving into a rural area. Certainly. Well, that's, that's good to know. Because you have to have a call, don't you? You're called to, to pursue a career in medicine in one way or another. But then beyond that, you have a call to serve a particular community. There's going to be challenges in a town like Crossed Arkansas or in Fordyce, Arkansas or in Mariana, Arkansas that you don't have in Little Rock. And so they have to understand they're willing to accept those challenges but they understand there's a need for their talent and their service. Absolutely. And that's what, and with our meetings, a lot of these physicians comment on what an impact you make on your community as a physician there. Um, and of course, there are a lot of scholarship, loan repayment opportunities that we promote with the students because that's huge with debt increasing a lot for these students. Um, we really try to promote that as a way to get them there, hoping that if they get there, they'll fall in love with these small communities and stay. And I was going to ask about incentive. 
a lot of students have to be incentivized to to do this. So what type of incentives are there if they do make that choice? There are a lot of scholarship programs and uh, loan repayment programs that students can participate in. Um, usually it's for maybe a three-year commitment, three- to five-year commitment in the community. Um, it has to be an improved community. It has to be a small community. They can't go to Jonesboro or Fayetteville. It has to be a small town. Um but there are lots of opportunities out there for the students that we promote. Now, UAMS is getting ready to kind of host and conduct uh, a tour of three rural hospitals or three rural communities uh, here coming up shortly to introduce students to what is available there in these communities. Uh, Monticello, Crossit, and Fordyce is where these tours are going to take place. And you've got a large number of students that have signed up that they want to participate to learn what's available there. Why are you doing this and uh, what are you hope to, the outcome will be? So we identified the need in the communities. Uh, we had a rural summit with the Rockefeller Institute and that was an issue that was identified is that we really need to get students and our residents into the communities um, to introduce them to the communities. Hopefully that they will see themselves practicing there. So we are taking these students to see the clinics, what their practice life would be, what it would be like to live in the community. And uh, they have an opportunity to meet with the CEOs of these institutions. They have an opportunity to perhaps meet with some uh, local business leaders and just get a feel, you know, for what it would be like to live there. Uh, what other type of service opportunities do these students have? Talk about adopting a community. So the student, we would adopt a community and go out and just kind of see what their needs are, but just get the students involved in the community, meet the folks that are in the town, and just provide any sort of help that we can. That could include uh, some local public health screening opportunities, just to do some basic tests in these small towns. Absolutely. Health screenings, backpack programs, food drives, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, Jessica, uh, thank you for visiting with us just for a few minutes today. And uh, as the association grows, you know, we'll kind of keep in touch with you and see about that and uh, and partner with you on it. But uh, best of luck. And, and let's hope that we get some of these med students once they get board certified and they're ready to start their residency programs and get out and serve these communities that some of them will want to relocate and help meet these needs in these small towns. Absolutely. Very important. And we're looking forward to it. Been speaking with Jessica Burks. She's a student coordinator for regional programs here at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in Little Rock on this edition of AgCast. That does it for this week. We'll be back next Thursday with more news and interviews about Arkansas agriculture.